You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Now we turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, and while you're turning there, I'll give you a bit of an explanation as to why we're in Psalm 73 and not uh, John 13. I'd expected last week to be in John 13, but as I mentioned, I'm going to be gone for uh, a couple of weeks from the pulpit, and so I decided to do something a little bit different, and and here's why. Normally we would start a chapter, a section like John 13, and I would give a sermon which would be an introduction to kind of say John 13 through 17, which is a, a major section in John's gospel all kind of together. And then we would start into the text of John 13. The beginning of John 13 is really like uh, one text that sort of introduces the first episode in chapter 13. And then I would be gone because I'm only speaking today and next week, and then I'm going to be out because of how things have fallen out for a few weeks. And so then when I would come back, by the time I got back, we would all forget everything that I had introduced and said, which would be necessary to have in our minds as we work our way through the 13th chapter of John, and those of you with, with good memories would say, Jim, why, when you returned, did you spend two weeks telling us what you told us before you left? And recapping all of that. And those of you with poor memories would say, why did you spend two weeks before we left telling us what you knew? We would forget eventually, so they have to tell us all over again. So I decided to do something entirely different from John for uh, this Sunday and next. And I, I called Dave Rich and I said, do you have any suggestions or ideas of what maybe I could do for two weeks? And Dave suggested everything that was controversial or would require weeks and weeks of study and preparation. Uh, you could teach on divorce and remarriage. You could give biblical arguments for cessationism or talk about the gift of tongues or maybe the difference between infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism. And as good as all of those suggestions were, I decided to go with a bit of a different route today. So we're diving into Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is, and maybe say this about all of the Psalms that we study, Psalm 73 is... I think, my favorite of the Psalms. Between Psalm 73 and Psalm 119, I think it would be a bit of a toss-up. Psalm Psalm 73, every time I read through it, I read through the the Psalms every year, every time I read through it, I get to Psalm 73, and I read this Psalm, and I just want to stop and just bask in it, and I always say to myself, one of these days, I'm going to preach through Psalm 73, because this is one of my favorite texts in all of the Psalms. And so that's what we're going to do. This week and next week, we're going to be covering Psalm 73. So we need to get started because you might imagine with the size of the psalm that is before us, we have a lot of ground to cover. What we're going to do is I'm going to begin by reading the entire psalm, the, the, the psalm in its entirety, so that we can we can get the the whole the whole thing that Asaph lays out here, the flow of the psalm uh, and, and sort of the transition that takes place. I want you to hear the entire psalm, and then I'll introduce it and kind of tell you what the outline is going to be for this morning. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, 
How does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Back to the beginning of the psalm, you'll notice that the psalm is introduced as a psalm of Asaph. There's not a lot that we know about Asaph other than that uh, he, he wrote 12 of the psalms that are in the book of Psalms. He wrote Psalm 50. So that means that this is the second of the psalms that he wrote. And this is the first of 11 consecutive psalms in the book of Psalms that is uh, written by Asaph. Uh, psalm 73 through Psalm 83 all bear his name. And all we really know about Asaph is that he was a Levite musician who lived at the time of King David. So he was a contemporary with David. And in, I think it's 2 Chronicles uh, 30 verse 29 or 29 verse 30, my memory fails me. In one of those two places, Asaph is called Asaph the seer. And he was appointed by David to lead the worship or the music and to have part in the music in the tabernacle. So the fact that he is called the seer is probably an indication that he had some sort of prophetic unction or prophetic function. In other words, God spoke through him. And these psalms that he wrote were recognized even in his own lifetime as psalms in which God had a hand and through which God was revealing truth. So he was a prophetic man who spoke for God, and in that way he is called a seer. And he was a contemporary of King David and wrote 12 of the psalms. That's really all that we know about Asaph. And you could read the psalms that he wrote and kind of get a, a feel for the heart of this man, Asaph. This psalm, as you may have, ex- have, have anticipated, expresses something that weighs heavy on the heart, probably of all of God's children. There is something that Asaph wrestles through here when he says, my feet had almost slipped. I had almost stumbled over this reality when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That is the subject matter of the psalm. It is the prosperity of the wicked. Interestingly, there's another psalm which is sort of a different take on the prosperity of the wicked. It's Psalm 37. You can remember that these two are connected. Psalm 37, Psalm 73. Just the the numbers are reversed. But they kind of go together. Psalm 73 is one perspective on the wicked. In Psalm 73, the wicked and the righteous are contrasted. Asaph didn't write Psalm 37. I think it's a Psalm of David. But Asaph wrote Psalm 73. So the subject matter is the prosperity of the wicked. And the the reality of the prosperity of the wicked is something that probably all of God's children have had to wrestle through or deal with in some way or another. Does it not seem that the more reprobate the sinner the more hostile to God, the more vocally anti-Christian, the more they hate God, the more they are blessed and the more they prosper. 
Is it just me that is, just I that have noticed that, or is everybody here seem to see the same thing? It seems like the more reprobate the sinner, the more they seem blessed with prosperity. And yet, at the same time, the more righteous a man is, or a woman is, the more they seem to encounter affliction and suffering and trials and tribulations and adversity. And isn't this something that perplexes us? Indeed, it is perplexing to us. We wonder, what do we say, what do we think about the prosperity of the wicked? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the nations rage and plot a vain thing against our God? Why is it that those who seem most hostile to God, most filled with hate against Him, are the ones who seem to, to get all of the money and all of the blessings and all of the prosperity. What, what do we do with that? That is what Asaph wrestles through in this psalm. The psalm really is divided nicely into two sections, verses 1 through 14 and verses 15 through 28. That means there are 14 verses in each of these two halves, and there's kind of a really nice division at the end of verse 14, and those two halves will form uh, our two Sundays, our two looks at this. We're going to deal with verses 1 through 14 today. There is kind of a hinge, and here's how the psalm is structured. You may have picked it up as we read through it. In the first half of the psalm, Asaph is looking at the prosperity of the wicked from the vantage point of humanity, from the vantage point of this earth, time, and this life. And he looks upon the wicked and says, they're prosperous. They're full of joy. Everything They live in ease, they die in ease, and that's how he views the wicked. But then in the second half of the psalm, his perspective changes entirely. And in the second half of the psalm, he sees the wicked from God's vantage point. The first half, he is looking at them horizontally. The second half, he is looking at the wicked vertically. In the first half, he is looking at them from man's vantage point. From the second half, God's vantage point. And that is the, that is the reason for the change in, in feeling between the first half and the second half. And there is a hinge. There is a hinge between these two halves. It is what I would call the key verse or the central verse of the entire psalm. And that's Psalm uh, 73, verse 17. It's verse 17. Look at it. Asaph says that he saw this, this was his view of the wicked, verse 17, until I came into the sanctuary of God. That's the key to the whole psalm. That is what unlocks the second half of the psalm. This is what I saw on earth. Then I came into the sanctuary of God, and I got God's vantage point on the wicked. And then in the second half, everything changes. And so we'll deal with the first half today. There are three things here that we will notice The first is that there is a truth that the righteous know. That's in verse 1. A truth that the righteous know. Second, there is a treasure that the righteous observe, namely the prosperity of the wicked. And the truth that the righteous know is that God is good. But then there is a treasure which we observe, and that is the treasury of blessings that the wicked enjoy. God is good. The wicked prosper. God is good. The wicked prosper. That's the truth that we know. This is the treasure that we observe. And that leads us thirdly in verses 13 and 14 to a temptation into which the righteous can fall. And that is to begin to think that we have kept ourselves pure in vain. So let's begin in verse 1. We'll work our way through the psalm. First, the truth that the righteous know. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now that is the foundational truth. That is the foundational premise uh, that Asaph begins with. And we have to begin with that foundational truth. That God is good to Israel. And that God is good to those who are pure in heart. Now it's interesting that Asaph begins this way because really... It is the goodness of God towards those who are His, which is at question in the heart of the psalm. That's what the psalm is wrestling with. Is God truly good to those who are His? Has God truly been good to those who name His name, to those whom He has loved? When it is the, when it is the wicked that prosper, can we really say that God is good? That is the truth which is on trial in the whole, whole psalm. But this is the, This is the victorious truth that Asaph realized after he wrestled through this personal crisis of faith. He comes to the conclusion, yes, 
God is good. God is good to His covenant people. God is good to those who are pure in heart. So He begins with that because if we don't begin with that truth, we will never end with that truth. If we begin with the, the vantage point that says the goodness of God is up for question, so let me look at reality and see what I can find out about whether or not God is good. But I'm going to hold that on trial. Is God really good? Well, let me look at how things mesh out. If we begin by questioning that God is good, you will never come to the conclusion that God is good. We must begin with that premise. God is good to those who are His. And we affirm that over and over and over. We know that we have tasted the kindness and the goodness of God. God is good to those who trust Him. That is, as it were, our North Star. And without that truth as our North Star, you and I will never be able to navigate the tempestuous waters of the circumstances and the inequities of this life. We'll never be able to do it. We have to begin with that as our focus, that God is good. So Asaph begins really with his conclusion, because what is on trial is the goodness of God. So he begins by reminding us God is good. That is the truth that the righteous know. Now listen, it may not always be easy or even possible for us to reconcile the reality of that truth with the circumstances that we observe in this life. We are not always able to reconcile that truth with the outworkings of divine providence. And sometimes we look at the outworkings of divine providence and we see that God allows certain things, that He does certain things, and we ask ourselves, how, how does that mesh with whether or not God is good? We may not be able to always see how those go together, but listen, we must be convinced that they do go together and that they will be reconciled. We begin with that premise. In the moment, I may not be able to see how that is true. But I begin by assuming that it is true. I begin with that vantage point, that God is good to His people, to the nation of Israel, and to those who are called by His name. Think of the nation of Israel was His covenant people. So in, in our time, not that we have replaced the nation of Israel, we haven't, but in our time we would say this, that God is good to those who are His, by His choice, by His sovereign choice. That is the doctrine of national election with Israel, and God is good to those who are pure in heart to those who have been purified and cleansed by their sins, to those who have called upon the name of the Lord with a pure heart, those are the ones to whom God is good. So that is the, that is the truth that the righteous know. Now look second at the treasure that they observe, verse 2. And Asaph is giving us here his personal testimony. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Now we are to read the me and the I there in a very em emphatic way because that is what Asaph is emphasizing he is not speaking hypothetically as if somebody out there may have observed at one time. I don't know any names. I don't know anybody specifically. But somebody may have observed that the righteous prosper. Asaph is not talking hypothetically about a third person somewhere out there. He is saying, this was my own personal crisis of faith. My feet had almost slipped. I had almost stumbled. I had almost tripped over this stumbling block, this dilemma, this perplexity, this thing that perplexes the righteous. I had almost stumbled over this. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, my feet had almost slipped. The word there for slipped is a word that refers to something sort of running out of its natural bounds. Uh, if you imagine like a, a group of kids on a playground or in the dirt, heaping up sort of little walls of mud, and then they pour water inside, and the water breaks through the little man-made dike and begins to spread out everywhere else. That's what that word kind of means. It has the idea of something leaving its boundaries, leaving its, its container. My feet had almost slipped. In other words, this is the path that I should have been on, but I found before long that my heart, when it began to question God's goodness and I saw the prosperity of the wicked, that my feet began to follow after where my heart was going. And that's the reality. Our heart always charts the course of our feet. Our feet follow our heart. And Asaph had in his own mind begun to question these things and see these things. 
And he found before long that he was off of the path where he should not have been. He was thinking things that he should not have thought. And we're going to get to that in verses 13 and 14. Those are the thoughts that he should not have been thinking. That it's vain to keep my hands pure. It's vain to cleanse my heart. So this is his own testimony, his own crisis of faith. And so we do well, we do well to follow Asaph and to learn from Asaph's experience because wise men learn from the experience and the crisis of other men. It's a fool who can't learn anything until he has gone through it himself several times. We want to learn from Asaph. So that's what we're, we're doing here. Verse three. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, his mind had begun to think wrong things about God. And this is really what caused him to be envious of the arrogant. Uh, and, and the King James translates that, I was envious of the foolish. And the word for translated arrogant can mean foolish. It can mean a boastful man, a mocker, a braggart, a loudmouthed individual. That, that's kind of with a picture of a fool or an arrogant individual in Scripture. Asaph says, I saw the prosperity of the wicked, all the riches, the blessings, the treasures that the wicked enjoy, and I began to envy them. I began to envy them. Spurgeon notes concerning this verse, the irony and how foolish it is to envy a fool. Isn't that, isn't that ironic? That you, you would find yourself envying a fool? Read everything the Scripture says in, in, in the Proverbs and in Scripture about the fool. And then ask yourself, is that the type of person that I should be envying? That I should want their lot in life? When you find yourself envying an arrogant man or a boastful fool, your compass needs to be recalibrated because something is, is dreadfully wrong. But envy is this wasting disease, and it is a disease of the heart and of the soul. It's a sin that really robs us of the blessings that God gives to us. And here's how. Because it takes our eyes off of the things that God has given to us and causes us to look upon the things that God has given to somebody else and wanting them. And so the envious man sees what God has given to my neighbor and wants that with, without realizing all that God has given to me. And so I am robbed of all of the blessings that I enjoy because I am only conscious of the blessings that I do not enjoy. And so when Asaph saw the, the bounty and the prosperity of the wicked, he said, I, I want that. That's what I want. And he began to desire that. And then he began to observe in the wicked all of their bounty and their treasure, which he is now going to describe. Look at verse 4. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. Now it's kind of odd that Asaph, when beginning to list the blessings or the treasures that the wicked enjoy, that he begins with how they die. We might think that Asaph would begin with how they live, right? And then finish up with how they die. But he doesn't. He reverses it. And, and maybe I wonder, and this is complete speculation, I wonder if Asaph had just watched somebody wicked die and watched somebody righteous die and the wicked died at peace and the righteous died in agony and he thought, why is it that the wicked die this way? And maybe this is the reason why it was the first thing on his mind. He doesn't begin by talking about how the wicked lived. He begins by talking about how the wicked die and how do they die. There are no pains in their death. There are no pains in their death. They don't waste away in agony. They don't spend weeks and months and years fighting an incurable disease only to die in agony and torment and suffering like the righteous do. They just seem to, they just seem to fly away into eternity without a care in the world. They live at ease and they die at ease. They live in comfort and they die in comfort. And there's no torment at all, at all in their death. They, they die just pain free. In, in a moment, they're just gone. While my, my godly aunt lies and dies in a bed, and she's been there bedridden for six months, and this wicked individual who spent his life oppressing others, in a moment, he's gone. He dies with ease. There's no pains in his death. He doesn't suffer and he's not afflicted. 
And look at the end of verse 4. Their bodies are fat. And I think the old the King James says their uh, their strength is strong. No, how does it? Their strength endures or something like that. Their body is their body is strong. And the idea is, have you ever seen somebody who died a slow, agonizing, painful death from an incurable wasting disease? How they go from uh, a normal body weight like mine, mine's not normal, but I mean a body weight like mine, down to just being skin and bones in the matter of eight months. Have you seen that happen? A, a wasting disease that cannot be cured. And they die, and when that, when that person dies, they're not even able to lift themselves up on their elbow. They can hardly have the strength to breathe because they are weak. Not with the wicked. No, they're fat when they die. They, they've lived in fatness, and they die in fatness. They don't waste away. There are no pains. They're like a ballpark prank on the day that they die. They're just up and they're gone. And, and they, don't have this, they don't have the suffering and the affliction in their death. And, and you would think that at least in the moment of their of, of death in all of its agony, that at that moment there might be some distinction between the righteous and the wicked. That you, you might then find that the wicked, having lived their entire life in prosperity and ease and comfort and, and carefree, that they might get to the end of their lives and at least then, for a few moments even, be in anguish and anxiety and suffering and affliction. That God might at least give them, for a few moments before they die, some comeuppance for all of their wicked. That's what we might expect, but no. No, even though death is the great equalizer in one sense, that no matter what road we take, we all end up there. We are all, all equal and stripped of all of our earthly possessions. It's an equalizer in that sense, but death is not equal for all men, is it? The righteous suffer and waste away and in agony, die slow, miserable deaths, and the, the wicked, they just into eternity. Fat and plump. Just like they live, fat and plump. Give you some examples. You think of examples? Saddam Hussein. He died like that, hung. Was he anxious? No, I walked up to the gallows, faced death, chanting Aluah, Alahawa, Akbar, oh yeah, yeah, whatever it was that he was chanting, and he put the, net, the finger, hood over his head, and the neck, rope around his neck, and boom, dead. Plump as a ballpark, Frank. That's how he died. How many people far more righteous than Saddam Hussein wasted away in disease and suffering and starvation and died under his hand? And how does he die? Quick, easy. Osama bin Laden. One quick bullet to the head, surrounded by all of his wives who were there to meet his every need. Does that seem right? That, that a wicked man would die like that? How many people wasted away and died in torment and suffering at his hand? Adolf Hitler dies in the arms of his mistress. How many millions of people wasted away in disease and concentration camps and died slow, miserable deaths at his hand? And he dies in the arms of his mistress. Does that seem right to you? That is what Asaph is describing here. Verse 5. They're not in trouble as other men. Nor are they plagued like the sons of men. See, the wicked, they don't seem to, they don't seem to, to live the same life that you and I live, do they? They're not in trouble like other men. They go about their life, all of the things that consume us day to day, it doesn't bother the wicked. They, they, it doesn't bother the prosperous. They get all the money that they want. Do you think that Bill Gates wakes up on any morning and wonders where his next meal comes from? Do you think that Steve Jobs ever went to sleep wondering if he's going to be able to afford to, to fix his car? Do you think that Ted Turner ever wonders if the landlord's going to show up next month to collect the rent and he doesn't have it? Do you think they ever worry about those things? They don't. But those are the things that consume us, right? Uh, my roof leaks, and not right now, I'm not talking about me, but I'm just speaking generically. Right? My roof leaks, and I need a new roof, and I need to replace the deck, and i got to decide between having shoes for my kids or a hot water heater this month. And thankfully it's summer, and so we can kind of do away with the hot water heater for maybe at least another month. So it's shoes this month. And barring any catastrophes, hot water heater the next month. Do you think the wicked and the prosperous ever have to worry about that? They don't worry about that. They don't have, they don't do any of the, 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 the mundane things that consume our lives. None of those worries. 
It doesn't plague them. They're not in trouble like other men. They're not consumed by those day-to-day cares like we, we are. What's your day look like? You, you go to a job that you don't even like most of the time. You do something you don't even like doing. You come home from that. And uh, on the way home, you have to pick up your kid at the school. So you pick up your kid and the teacher tells you, you know, Johnny's not doing too well and you need to spend more time with him and to get his grades up or he's going to be falling behind and may have to fail him. So you worry about that. And, and, and by the way, you need some money for the field trip next week or he's not going to be able to go. And he's the only kid in the class that won't be able to go. And so then you get into the car and there's that grinding and that squeaking thing again. And I should really get that checked out. But who has the money for that this month? After all, remember the hot water heater and the shoes thing? So, okay, it's shoes, hot water heater, and then fix my car. And you get home and you realize when you get home that the lawn needs to be mowed and the kitchen needs to be cleaned and dinner needs to be made and homework needs to be done. And then your husband shows up. And guy, what, is it, what has it been like at work for you, right? Your bosses are this and your bosses are that and you had to deal with this crisis and that coworker, and you're all fed up and your, your car squeaks as well and the radio doesn't work and that's what you need because you got to wind down after a day's work and so you show up and you both kind of go to work a little bit on the house and the things that need to be done and I'll mow half the yard tonight and the other half tomorrow night if I'm lucky and I can get to it and finally you get the dinner made and the kitchen somewhat tidied up so at least it doesn't look like a bomb went off in there. We get the kids to bed after a little bit of homework, get the kids to bed, we flop down in front of the TV we hit the power button and what comes on there? Entertainment tonight, and here's this beautiful couple standing there, their arms around each other on the red carpet, and the cameras are flashing like this, and the fans are all cheering, and oh, aren't they great? And what do you think to yourself? Those people don't live in the same world that I live in, right? What was their day like? They got up this morning, and somebody made their breakfast, and it wasn't like, me, a piece of bread or a piece of toast as I'm running out the door. No, no. They woke up and it was freshly squeezed orange juice and grape juice right out of the fruit. And the, the kitchen was cleaned after breakfast. Somebody else did it. The maid did it, not me. And it was the nanny that got the kids up and got them ready for bed and drove them to their private school where they get private tutors and everything is handed to them. They're getting a stellar education. And these parents, they don't even have to worry about that. And then they went out and they made a couple laps through the pool. And their pool is not like our pool, right? It's not inflatable. Our pools are inflatable. Their pools are not inflatable. So they get to go out and make a couple of laps in the pool. And then they get out and they, their private trainer arrives. And they work out. And then they sit next to the pool again while they get their massage. They talk to their agent on the phone. And then they show up at the red carpet gala event. And they put their arms around each other. And they're smiling and giggling and laughing. And you're sitting there on the, on the, on the couch thinking to yourself, I'll bet she wakes up looking like Miss America every morning. Every morning. And her breath smells like a mint garden. And he, his hair is never disheveled and he never has the five o'clock shadow and he's never curt with her and they're smiling, grinning from ear to ear. I wish I could be like them. Right? They don't have troubles like other men have. They don't have the difficulties that I have to suffer through. They, they don't know what it's like to wake up every morning and have to deal with what I have been consumed with for the last 16 hours nonstop. Oh, to be like the person on the screen. When I was envious, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They'll probably die in good health. They probably die with ease because they live at ease and that's their life. And this is mine. They are the wicked. I am the righteous. And what do I get? What do I get? I was envious when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Spurgeon says, Fierce trials do not arise to assail them. They smart not under the divine rod. While many saints are both poor and afflicted, the prosperous sinner is neither. He is worse than other men, and yet he is better off. He plows the least, and yet he has the most fodder. He deserves the hottest hell, and yet he has the warmest nest. Now, how it feels about the wicked sometimes? That's their life? Now look at verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. You see, when they get 
exalted like this, they begin to live on that level. They start to think, I deserve this. I have earned this. Look at the kingdom which my hands have built. Look at what I have made. Look at what I deserve. And so they wear their pride openly. Rather than be ashamed of their of their pride and their arrogance, they wear it outwardly. That's the sense of that. Pride is their necklace. They wear it. They vaunt it in front of all men. They treat their servants like their servants. And everybody has to do their bidding. And if they don't get what they want, they, they jump down people's throats because everybody has to bow before them. And they wear their arrogance outwardly. This is how they are so wicked. Verse 6, their garment of violence covers them. They, they think violent thoughts. They do violent thoughts. Their, their ways of oppression are known and seen before all men because they wear it like a garment. Verse 7, their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imagery here is that they have indulged themselves so much to the point where their eyes are popping out. They bulge from fatness. These are people who have so grossly indulged their every appetite that their eyes bulge. Whereas the righteous might enjoy one feast a year where we walk away and say, wow, I love that turkey dinner. i got to unbuckle my belt and sit down in front of the TV and watch some football because I just can't even move. My eyes are bulging. I'm so full. The wicked enjoy this day after day after day after day. It is prosperity after prosperity. Want another vacation? Go to Hawaii. You want more food? We'll just have another private concert at the White House. Just as an example, I'm just throwing something out there. Okay? Whatever, whatever they want, they get. Whatever they desire, they buy it. They acquire it. Verse 7, their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart runs riot. That phrase literally means whatever it is that their heart desires, they get. In other words, whatever they can think of, no matter how opulent, no matter how extravagant, no matter how over the top, they just, they desire that and they want it, they buy it and they get it. The imagination of their heart, their wicked heart, runs riot and every selfish, greedy lust that they have is indulged and not just indulged, the idea is it is indulged and beyond indulged. Whatever they want, they get, no matter how extravagant it is. Sometimes the wicked can waste more food at a meal enough to feed a village full of people. And at one meal, they waste that. Because it is not just extravagance. Have you ever noticed that somehow the prosperous wicked enjoy not just extravagance, but opulent extravagance beyond the imagination of most people? The imagination of their heart runs riot. Verse 8, they mock. They wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. The idea being that they sort of exalt themselves above other people and speak down to us. They speak down to the rest of mankind as if we've got the answers for humanity. Come to us. We will give you wisdom. We know how that you can be like us. So they, they speak from on high. Their words are wicked. They're mocking words. They're oppressing words. Everybody looks up to them and says, oh, if I could only be like them. And they gladly take that position. And they look down on everybody else and, and speak to everybody else on high as if they have authority and they have understanding and they have wisdom and they're happy to share it with you, you little ones, you plebes out there who are all looking up to them. That's, that's the idea. That's the attitude. They mock and they ridicule. Verse 9, they have set their mouth against the heavens. That is, they speak against God, against God's people, against God's word, against God's purposes. They speak against God and their tongue parades through the earth. That's beautiful imagery, isn't it? It's just their tongue marching like in a marching band, just parading through the earth, going wherever it wants. And sometimes even, have you noticed, sometimes even the, the words of the wicked seem blessed. Even what they say 
tends to make its way all the way around the world while the truth never even gets off the starting blocks. Have you ever noticed that? What they say just seems to prosper and, and, and they speak and people gobble up what they say and it, their, their words, their tongue, their mouths, all their arrogant speech just covers the globe. And everywhere we go, I turn on the TV and I'm assaulted by the words of an arrogantly prosperous man. And I turn on the radio and I hear the words of an arrogantly prosperous man. And I turn on the Oprah network and I hear the words of an arrogantly prosperous woman. And no matter where I turn, no matter what I do, their, their tongue, their language, their teachings, they just spread throughout the entire earth. Not only does what they do just seem to turn to gold, what they say just prospers. They just speak and every, everybody hears it. Oh, to have the words of a righteous man have the same impact, right? You ever wondered that? Even their words are prosperous. Verse 10, therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. Verse 10 is very awkward, depending on the translation that you have. That's going to read differently in every one, and here's why. Nobody knows exactly what that Hebrew phrase in verse 10 means. More than likely, it was a colloquialism, a proverb of the day, uh, sort of a figure of speech or a proverb that its meaning has just been entirely lost to us, and we don't know. But verse 10, we can kind of judge from the context and the flow of the passage and kind of take a stab at what we think he might be referring to here. Let me give you a few options. And it might be any one of these three. Verse 10 might be describing the conduct of God's people in the face of oppression. Meaning that his people, that is God's people, return hither, as the King James says, the hither being the palace of the temple of God. God's people return to the temple of God and they cry out waters of abundance, their tears, to God over the oppression of the wicked. So the righteous see the, the, the prosperity of the wicked and their only recourse is to go to God and to make complaint about it. That's all they can do. That might be what verse 10 is describing. Or verse 10 may be describing the treatment of God's people by the wicked. In which case it would mean this. The righteous, when they come before the wicked or to the wicked, the wicked oppress them especially. And they wring out their, the juice of their life like, like juice from a fruit. And these waters of abundance then would be the juices or the waters that are wrung out of the righteous by the oppression of the wicked as they are pressed down whenever the wicked can get their hands on the righteous. That's kind of what I, I, I think that that's what is being intended here. The third option is that this would describe how the righteous are led astray to join the wicked. In other words, the righteous would look at the prosperity of the wicked and then say, maybe we should come hither. Maybe we should go and join them, join their cause, and then we too will drink the waters of abundance. In other words, when you observe the prosperity of the wicked, is there not something inherent in that observation, a temptation that says, if I do that, maybe I will get that. If I join company with them, if I come hither, then I too can drink the waters of abundance like they seem to enjoy even in their wickedness. It could mean any one of those three things. I think it has to do with the oppression of the, the righteous by the wicked because the very next verse, verse 11 says, they say, that is the wicked say, how does God know and is there knowledge with the Most High? In other words, as the wicked oppress the righteous, they get away with it saying, does God really know about this? Does God really care? Surely God does not see this since no judgment has come down upon me for all of my uh, uh, lascivious living and all of my uh, opulence that I have enjoyed and the prosperity. It seems that the more wicked I grow, the more prosperous I become, the more I cheat and steal and lie and finagle, the more dishonest I am, the more the blessings of heaven just pour down upon me. And, and I can oppress the righteous and take from them. And does God even see this, what I'm doing? And so they begin to live as if God doesn't know what they're doing. They begin to live as if there is no knowledge with the Most High. And then you try and warn one of those prosperous wicked, you try and warn them about the judgment to come. And you know how difficult that is? 
That is difficult because they reason in their minds, if God has given me nothing but wealth and prosperity and blessing for all that I have done on this earth, who could expect him to do anything different for all of eternity? And so the warnings of the judgment to come just fall on deaf ears because they say, does God even know? Does God even care? Verse 12 sums it all up. Behold, these are the wicked. Behold. The idea is look. Look upon this. Look upon this in amazement. Set your eyes upon this spectacle. Is this not an enigma? Is this not a dilemma? Does this not perplex the righteous? To look at this situation and to say, these are the wicked. We might expect if God is God and God is good, we might expect that it would be the righteous who prosper. That they would be the ones that would be blessed. That everybody would be like Abraham and be wealthy beyond the description. We might expect that to be the case with the righteous, but it's not. What we have just described, dying with ease, dying without pain, living in comfort and ease and extravagance and blessing. Behold, these are the wicked. Not the righteous, the wicked. Who can look upon that and not say, how do we, what do we do with that? How do we, how do we handle that? What do we think about that? Who can look at that without being utterly perplexed at such a sight? We can't do that, can we? Behold, these are the wicked. And they're at ease. Asaph has to remind us. Remember, the wicked, their life is not like yours. All, all the daily concerns, the fear of death. No. The wicked, they don't, they don't have to suffer through that. And their wealth continually increases. Verse 12. They have increased in wealth. It seems that their money just makes them more money. And their money multiplies, and with their multiplied money comes multiplied comforts and multiplied ease. And it just never seems to be an end to it. Now, it you can imagine, or you, you can probably yourself identify some of the, some of the modern day parallels to, uh, to such ease, to such opulence, right? You show up at your work, and you got your coworker, and he is a lazy, lying lout. And yet when the annual review comes around for your department, who gets the promotion? Who gets the blessing? Who gets the pat on the back? Who gets the raise? Who gets the benefit? Is it you? No. It's that lazy, lying lout. And the boss advances him because he's a, because he's a hardworking, community-minded, faithful servant of the community service. And he's so talented. And you say to yourself, hardworking. The only time that guy ever works hard is when the boss is looking. But all the rest of the time, he's just sitting around doing nothing, giving everybody else orders. And talented. Let's not even go there. This guy's more, not even as talented as a rock. And community service, what, he gave $5 to the food bank last year? And here I am. I am I'm honest. I work hard. I have integrity. I've never lied to my boss or done anything. And this guy gets promoted and I don't. Or you look at your business competitor and you say, this guy bilks his clients and pads his time and his bills and he cuts corners and does everything he can to make an extra buck and he's got more work than he can turn, he can't, he can't even turn down all the work he's got. And me, I never cut corners. I go the extra mile. I, I never lie to my clients. I never pad the bill. And I'm not even sure if I'll have work next month. Does that seem fair? Does that seem righteous? Am I describing something that nobody here has ever thought? Or gone through? Or are these the things that are common to the thinking of the righteous? Is this not a description of life in this world? It most certainly is. And so when we begin with the truth that the righteous know that God is good, He is good to those who are His, He is good to the pure in heart, we begin with that, but then we observe the treasure of the wicked, and we say, look at this, in their life and in their death, it is ease and blessing and nothing but. Then that leads us to a temptation into which the righteous can fall. Verse 13, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. The heart being a symbol or or a reference there to the inner man. It is in vain, it is without purpose that I have kept my heart pure. And it is in vain that I have kept my hands innocent. 
The hands would be the outward conduct, the heart being the inner conduct. In my mind and in my heart, I have sought purity and holiness. I have pursued holiness. And what do I get for it? Nothing but getting paid in the coin of affliction, as Spurgeon said. What benefit then is it? If my business partner cheats and lies, and he prospers, and if my coworker lies and lazes around and does nothing, and he prospers, then there is inherently this temptation. If I do what they did, the enemy says to me, then I would get what they get. Right? I would get the same blessing. So then it must be sure, sheer vanity. It must be sure emptiness and uselessness that I have pursued holiness. Because the wicked, they never get up every morning in the words of verse 4 and be stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Does it not seem that in the life of the righteous there is not a day that goes by that you don't have to fight against some sin, resist some temptation, put some sin to death, resist your flesh, pursue holiness, repent of something, confess something, do something, and yet we are stricken and smitten by the rod of a chastening and disciplining God all day long as His children. But the wicked, they don't have to deal with that. The wicked don't resist temptation. The wicked don't have to mortify their sin. The wicked don't have to push those things away. They just indulge their desires and they get blessed by it. This is the perplexity of the righteous. This is life on this earth, and that is a candid assessment of exactly what we see when we look at life horizontally. We see the wicked, wicked prosper. Now, the second half of the psalm unties this knot for us. The second half of the psalm gives us the rest of the truth and the perspective. We'll deal with that next week. I don't want to leave you sort of hanging with that, so let me just offer one thing that I think we can observe from the first 14 verses of this psalm. This is not an answer offered by Asaph in the second half, so I'm not spoiling next week. But it is something I think that we can observe just by going, working through word by word, phrase by phrase, these first 14 verses. Here's my observation. Is there not something about Asaph's uh, observation and complaint that is a little, a little unfair and one-sided? Maybe some of you picked it up as we went through it. Isn't there something about his observations that is just not quite entirely right? Is it true that all of the wicked die with ease? Is it true that all of the righteous suffer and waste away in a slow, agonizing death? Is that true? Or are there wicked people who die slow, agonizing, wasteful deaths as well? Is it not true that there are some righteous who after their days have been filled with plenty and blessing and grace day after day that they pass away quietly in their sleep with hardly a murmur or hardly a pain? That is true, isn't it? Is it true that everybody who walks out on the red carpet with the flashing lights and the cameras and the fan club, is it true that, uh, do you really think, do you really think that their home life is marked by tranquility and peace? You think that? If you do, you are a fool. The worst of fools. Just try and follow the Hollywood buzz about who's marrying who, who's divorcing who, who's dating who, who's back with who when they broke up with who. It's like a soap opera in Whoville. You can't possibly, you can't possibly keep up with all of that. It's, it's insanity. Right? And do you think that they sit down with a, with a meal and the kids and, it's just, hey, well, how did your day go? It's just all peace and, and tranquility. No, you know what they do? Some of those people drink themselves to sleep at night because they want to escape from that life. Some of those people would look at your life and say, oh, if I had what you had. How many of them have to die from a drug overdose? Or how many of them have to be arrested publicly and see their mug shots on the 5 o'clock evening news? How many of them have to be admitted to rehab centers before we realize that their lives are a living hell and that we really wouldn't want that? So what is Asaph doing here? In one sense, 
Asaph is only seeing the injustices and the inequities. But see, when his, when he looks upon the prosperity of the wicked and he is only looking at it horizontally, all Asaph sees is the inequities of this life. All he sees is their prosperity. It's like Asaph is looking through a set of goggles and he is not allowed to see any kind of evidence that might contradict what he has already determined in his mind is true. So when he looks out to see the inequities of life, guess what he sees? Only the inequities of life. All he sees is the wicked prosper. All he sees is when the righteous suffer. And all the other evidence, he is blind to all of the other realities of life. And so you read something like what Asaph has wrote, and then you have to stop and say, hold on, hold on, hold on, time out, time out. That is not entirely true. That is a true reflection of Asaph's perception of reality. But the problem is, it is not reality. It is not reality. It is a reality that we have all seen at one time or another, and that we have all wrestled with at one time or another, but it is not true reality. The second half of the psalm gives us reality. And when you look at it from the perspective of reality, then you have a way in which you can observe the prosperity of the wicked and understand it from God's vantage point. And we will look at the second half of the psalm next week. I would encourage you, just read Psalm 37 a couple times this week. Read Psalm 73 a couple times this week. Reflect upon these truths. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you that you have so described accurately the frustration that many of your righteous ones feel when they see the blessing that rests upon the wicked. We are thankful that the true blessings, the richest blessings, are not the physical blessings that we enjoy in this life, but the eternal and spiritual blessings that you have lavished upon us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we're able to read a psalm like this and to begin by affirming that you are good. You are good to those who are pure in heart. You are good to those who are yours by your choice. And we thank you for the blessings that you have given to us. May we never fall into this trap of being envious of the wicked, of the fools, and of the arrogant, lest we might stumble as Asaph almost did. Thank you for protecting us from this. Thank you that you have given us eyes to see the glorious realities of the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. And may we fix our heart and our mind and our affections upon those things that you might be glorified through our worship of you for all of your many rich blessings. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.